Welcome to Radical Mothering. I'm Fran. This is a podcast that challenges our accepted norms around children's autonomy, consent, education, and mothering. This week, I'm talking to Sarah Casper, and I'm so excited to share this conversation. Sarah is a consent educator, and we talk about what consent is and why it matters and what it can look like in real life. We also talk about overusing the word consent, about boundaries, and about why you can't really talk about consent without also talking about power. I'm here today with Sarah Casper. I'm so pleased you could make it. I'm so glad I'm, I get to be here. Um, okay, um, why don't we start with you just quickly introducing yourself and uh, just telling people who you are and what you do. Sure. My name is Sarah Casper. I'm based in Brooklyn, New York, and I uh, a little bit reluctantly call myself a consent educator. And the reason that I say reluctantly is because I think uh, there are a lot of different associations people have with the word consent. And I think just saying consent isn't necessarily enough to really describe uh, what I do. Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that because in my head, I've always called you a consent educator, but, but so, okay, so if you had like free reign and you could just say words and call yourself something, what would you call yourself? Totally. I mean, I, I chose to call myself that. I do call myself that. I just do so with a little bit of reluctance um, because it requires so, so many more words. Um, I think the best way to say it concisely is that while consent is often talked about in the world uh, under or under the umbrella of sex education, I uh, talk about and teach about consent under the umbrella of social emotional learning. So I think that's the the big differentiation is that there's not a strong association right now, um, at least from where I'm standing between consent and social emotional learning in the world. Uh, but that is the world in which I work. Okay. Yeah, interesting, because I mean, I talk a lot about consent, and I think a lot about consent, and I think it's easy to lose track of the fact that a lot of people don't actually know what it means, really, you know, and also people have different definitions, right? Exactly, it's a concept, so there's different conceptualizations, and in different moments, it can mean something different. When you're talking to a kid about their body boundaries, and you say, you know, do they have consent, that means something so different than when we're talking to a bunch of students at university and talking about consent policies. And so I think, uh, yeah, people can really run free with the term consent when they hear consent educator. And so it is the closest approximation to what I do, but uh, with some caveats. So I'd love to know how you kind of um, got into this line of work. Sure, it's a, it's a fun story. Uh, my back, My educational background is in psychology. And I mostly worked with kids and specifically kids who were classified as having quote unquote behavioral disorders. So ADHD, autism, oppositional divine disorder. And after I got my bachelor's in psychology, it's like, I, I love this. The, I, I guess the thing I do next is get a doctorate. And so I started a doctoral program in clinical psychology and had clients already my first semester in practicum and realized I really did not want to be a therapist. Um, the learning was cool, but it was a very practical program. And I was just like, I don't think this is it. I'm 24. I need to take a break and regroup. 
And so I had always lived in the New York, New Jersey area. I was like, I'm going to mix things up. I'm going to move to Utah, which is Southwest (laughs) United States, um, where my brother lives. And I'm just going to try out that. And so I did that. And um, I was waitressing at a restaurant and like doing kind of like hiking and rock climbing and all these different outdoor things during the day. And that's where I learned the practice of acro yoga. Where, um, are you familiar with acro yoga? Yeah, I used to yeah. teach yoga actually, fun fact. Cool. Um, so yeah, it's a partnered acrobatic practice. And I got into that. I then ended up in India getting my yoga teacher certification then came back to Brooklyn, New York, kids yoga. Not sure what I'm doing. And then one day in the park, I'm doing acro yoga with some friends and I'm laying down on the grass. And all of a sudden I shoot my head up and I'm like, the rules of acro are the same as the rules of sex. And my friends are like, I'm sorry, what's happening right now? Um, And I said, I was like, well, there's excitement, but there's also risk. And how I interact with you, because I've practiced with you a lot, is going to be different than how I interact with someone new. And there's power dynamics. And there's assumption about my body and what I should be doing because of how I show up in my body. And there's uh, learning to like ask for what you want. There's learning to handle a no. There's learning to set boundaries. There's negotiating while you're mid pose to make sure it works. And you need both people for it to work well. And that like lit a fire under me. And I started to really see how the skills that I had learned in acro yoga through practicing body boundaries and navigating my body in this lower stake setting had really helped me navigate my body in other settings. And I was like, oh, this is just generalizable skills. I learned about this in school. <laughs> um, and from there, it kind of, uh, yeah, the ball really got rolling. And I started seeing that we can teach kids by teaching kids how to navigate their bodies and their boundaries when they're younger when the stakes are low we prepare them for when they're teenagers adults if they so choose to navigate those boundaries when the stakes are potentially higher great I love that story and and I have a a follow-up to what you just said but before we go there I just wanted to ask you because I know you have like your own definition of consent and I would love for you to share that (laughs) it's so I actually how I define consent depends on the group I'm talking to sometimes as well um I don't define consent legally that I I don't know the legal definition of consent in most places actually Uh, and some don't even have a legal definition of consent um How I typically talk about consent right now is the, I talk about the practice of consent as the practice of navigating two or more people's boundaries and desires. Um, I also talk about consent as a practice that upholds bodily autonomy. I talk about uh, consent as um, the practice of consent as the practice of creating and nurturing a mutually designed experience which is a mouthful and I also sometimes use a Venn diagram to talk about consent where it's what I'm comfortable with what you're comfortable with and consent is what we do uh so depending on who I'm talking to and what I'm trying to relate to them and how old they are I will actually use a different conceptualization of of the practice of consent 
I don't really use the term consent outside of using it as a practice, but I, I don't really use it as a synonym for permission. Yeah, so I'm going to ask you about that later. Okay, um, great. I love what you say about that too, but I love how you, the last thing you said about um, a mutually, what do you designed say? Creating yeah. and nurturing a mutually designed experience. Yeah, because it really like gives the sense of like, there's, you know, two or more people in this doing it together as opposed to like the giving and getting thing that we often like fall into like oh they gave consent oh I'm giving consent like it's something that you like pass around or whatever mm -hmm. and and not that that's not important I just call that permission right it's very specific that's an important that's an important part of consent right it is is it okay if I borrow your sweater yes okay and now but but how are we navigating that in terms of what are the expectations of when you give it back? And when? What, how do I expect you to treat it while you're wearing it? Those, it's more than just permission. It, it goes beyond that. It's right a mutually designed experience. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just like the permission bit is really, the permission giving bit is a, a small part of like the whole. Precisely. Consent. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, wait, now I'm trying to remember what you were talking about. Uh, oh yes, about not actually using the word and how you're kind of encouraging people to, uh, I've seen you talk yeah. about this online, you know, encouraging parents uh, and others to not use the word, overuse the word consent. Yeah, yeah. I Because consent is, because the impact of not practicing consent in high stakes situations is so high. I think there's a real urge that comes from a, an important place for kids to know that they don't have to do something they don't, or, or for people to know they don't have to do something they don't want to do, um, specifically in a sexual situation. Um, and for people to know if they didn't get consent, that that's not okay. But what gets kind of messy is then what does consent mean and how is it different from not getting consent to take your three-year-old sibling's toy when you're five years old and how is that different than not uh, than sexually assaulting someone when you're older. And there is a parallel there, absolutely. And also the word consent can uh, is really strong to use there. Um, and it gets kind of confusing because kids know the term permission. They know, ask first, permission. What did they say? Did you? Are they okay with that? We have language already to navigate that situation with the five-year-old and the three-year-old. We don't need to throw in language that then confuses them and, and makes it seem more serious than it actually is is in that moment um we if we teach them the skills they'll get the actual legal consent part right teaching them the big word consent doesn't necessarily do that and there's actually research that shows that college students are really good these days at sharing what like affirmative consent is and the yes means yes model and their practices haven't really changed mm, well that's really interesting to know that yeah. It's not enough to just know the word and what it means. Right. Yeah. It's like, I because it, it, it's, it's doing it in the moment. I mean, if we want, if we're going to understand consent as a simple, 
did you get permission? Did you get verbal explicit permission? Then yeah, that is easy and you or easier and you don't necessarily need skills. But if we're talking about, you know, enthusiastic yeses and what's their capacity and can it be nonverbal, then we started getting into this really complicated area where it's like, oh no, you need skills to navigate to people in in potential conflict, in potential uh mutual decision making, collaboration, compromise. Um, and so teaching them the word, I, I, it might make sense to teach them the word in a very specific, here's a word to know, and it is a legal thing, but to use it in everyday conversation of, did you get consent from grandma or did grandma, you know, get, I think it distracts and I would rather, and it's, it's more useful for the kids if they're hearing did you ask first are they okay with that and how do you know yeah maybe they didn't ask but it's because that person said I want a hug oh okay so then you know they want a hug great sure yeah you don't have to ask in that situation but that's different than did you get consent yeah no it's true um and and I agree with that um and I do think it gets overused but I think it's also like an adult thing like we overuse it because I overuse it for sure, because like when I'm writing about it, like I just use it a lot so that people know what I'm writing about. But then, I mean, I think it, it's valuable also for us to like bear in mind that people might not actually know what we're writing about when we say consent. There's, I actually have a whole uh, video on YouTube about what do you mean when you say consent? Because sometimes people are, are talking about agreement and some people are talking about was that wanted? which are two totally different things. Like when my parents come home from work and they give each other a kiss, there's no asking there, but it was wanted. Yeah. So was it consensual or was it not? We're all going to say yes, but then when we say consent also means permission, then that gets kind of distorted. And that's what I mean when I say I'm a consent educator. It's like, what do you mean when you say consent? Let me tell you what I mean right here. I'm talking about the practice of consent and the relationship and the navigation of that. Yeah, and I think something that gets missed as well um, in all these interactions is like the the power dynamics and the power differentials that there are in relationships and I know you talk about that um, and uh, you also talk about well you talk about how like the the power differentials in a relationship or in you know in a group setting can impact uh, especially you know children's or more marginalized people's ability to consent <laughs> or like make decisions or say mm -hmm. yes maybe right mm -hmm. um so yeah would you like to expand a little bit on that yeah yeah I usually talk about in terms of like giving their true answer I think is how I usually would we'll talk about it uh yeah so I think there's along with the increased conversation around consent since 2017 and me too there's also like a better understanding now of coercion right you don't want to manipulate someone pressure someone threaten someone bribe someone into doing things that they don't want into sex everything under that umbrella and how people understand coercion is usually under the umbrella interpersonal coercion which is exactly those things which is someone is doing something to you or saying something to you in that moment that is making it hard for you to say no or making you feel like you have to say yes that is different than this um term that uh nicola gavey coined in 2005 in a paper that she wrote um 
that's called uh, social coercion. And social coercion is no one's saying anything to me, but because of who I am and how I understand the world, I feel like I have to say yes or like I can't say no because you are an authority figure, because you have more experience than me, uh, because you are a man, because I am a girlfriend, because of whatever it is society has drilled in me that I need to defer to you. So you might not be doing something intend like at, at all. You might you might have done everything correct and I feel like I have to say yes to you or I can't say no. And those power dynamics you have to be aware of them because not doing anything isn't going to solve them. Not doing anything solves for interpersonal coercion. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't solve for the social coercion part. So that's, that's one of the big, um, so I, I think being aware of those power dynamics and, and doing what you can to mitigate them needs to, needs to be part of that consent conversation. Okay. I love that there's a, I actually didn't know there was a word for this, but I talk about this all the time, but I didn't know it had a specific word. So I'm so grateful that you put it out there. I found it and I was like, I am not forgetting this. <laughs> I've actually written it down. So written, written down her name secretly. Um, anyway, but um, yes, so I, I think the, the social coercion piece is the piece that we miss a lot. And I see that between like um, adults and children a lot because children are often in a position of less power, especially in uh, more formal settings, right? So I think you had a reel that I really loved where you, it was like a kind of uh, made up scenario of you you being an adult in a classroom and the children. I don't know if you remember this and like the or you're a teacher and then you you go and you just pick up someone's like backpack and you just walk off with it and nobody says anything. Do you remember that? This happened. This wasn't a made up scenario. This was a retelling of one of my favorite classroom moments. This actually happened in an eighth grade classroom. Um, yeah, I was teaching and there was a student in the class who were talking about how saying no is hard. And he said, no, no, it's not. And I think I pushed back a little bit, said something that I thought might convince him or see what I was saying. Maybe he misunderstood me. Still no. So in that moment, I made the risky choice, uh, somewhat risky. I this is not a recommendation. This is what I felt comfortable and what I felt like the learning moment was important. I went over to him, took his backpack and brought it to the front of the room. And everyone in the room is like turning their head, like looking at the other classmates being like, what did the teacher just do? And I get back to my desk and I say, was what I just did okay? And I'm a visiting teacher. I'm not, this is not you know, it's like, was what I just did okay? And they all said no. And I said, so why didn't you say anything? And then I brought the backpack right back. I yeah. also think it's important to notice, to note in that moment that I, one of the things that I consider is that I am white and so was the student or at least presenting. I don't know if I would have done that if the student um, was a person of color. That was also something that I had to like decide in that moment. And I'm like, there is a power dynamic in me taking that backpack and that's important if it was on his chair. I don't think I would have taken it. It was on the floor, which made it, I didn't have to access his body. All of those things. And it was, I don't think that student will ever, or anyone in that classroom where it will ever uh, say that saying no is easy. Um, and that's what I, um, it goes back to that, how I came to this through acro yoga of that embodied experience of saying no is hard. 
And in that moment, that's what they felt. They weren't being taught that just saying no is hard. They were engaging with that. Yeah. Um, in their bodies, presumably, because their bodies were probably saying no, but they weren't able to like verbalize it or didn't feel they were safe to verbalize it, right? Correct. They were just looking around waiting for, is someone else going to say something? This must be okay because she's the teacher. And that's kind of the point I was trying to make is that I can get away with this because of the power that I have. I mean, once you start to see this though, you see it everywhere. I don't know if this, if you walk around seeing this everywhere too, but I do like, all over and it becomes it becomes almost like a thing that you feel in your body right um so on the playground overhearing parents over here yep overhearing teachers um, and it's interesting because I came to this with my own children so like that's such a it's a very personal relationship obviously and very different to like you know me with maybe a child that I don't you know that it's not my own or a person who I don't know or whatever um so it's very personal and it it brings up like a lot of stuff right when you start to recognize actually you're in this position of like relative power and they are not all the time um and so that's a huge responsibility and we're always messing up as adults Mm -hmm. we're always having to like make amends and like there's just so much work to be done there and it never it's never going to be and I think you've spoken a little bit about this about how about like um, power with and power over um, and how you're never gonna you know initially when I first started uh, so we we homeschool and initially when we first started homeschooling I I was like okay we're gonna dismantle power dynamics Um, (laughs) which you know is is a worthy whatever you know, thing to try and do. But actually, there's different types of power, right? Um, and I think it's impossible to dismantle all power dynamics because I will always be the adult, you know? And, and there, they... No, go ahead. Sorry. I was gonna say, and there are good reasons why you have power in some situations. Like you have knowledge, you have a fully developed free prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have discussions with, I love having discussions with students or uh about what do you think you get to be the decision maker on and what do you think it's important for your parent or your adult to mostly be the decision maker on not entirely but it's who who shares the big load deciding if you're wearing a seatbelt in the car who who's mostly in charge of making that decision they know safety is in the hands of the adult and then so they'll say safety. That doesn't mean that if it's uncomfortable, the adult just says, well, I'm the decision maker, right? You work with it. But kids are somewhat aware of who who decides, you know, who's mostly in charge of um, making sure that uh, your plate has all kinds of nutrients on it, right? You don't have to worry about that because I'm going to take care of that as the parent. And kids understand that they don't want that responsibility necessarily. They want you to use what you know and use your cooking skills to 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 make sure that they have what they need it just when the parent is like no you have to wear this outfit of pajamas to bed that kids are like why I'm (laughs) I'm warm like this is uncomfortable for me why does this 
why are you the main decision maker in this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I think there's like um, gray areas, even in the kind of mm-hmm. healthy, you know, sphere, like for sure I've, okay. So recently I read a book, it's called Trust Kids and it's about like youth autonomy. Uh, I don't know if you've, you've seen it. No, but I love the title. Yeah, no, you should look it up. It's really good. Uh, and it's basically a series of essays. Some are by adults and some are by actually uh, like uh, young people. So teenagers. Um, and one of the teenagers, um, I'm assuming now that they're a teenager, but but I think they are, um, wrote an essay about this topic. And one of the things they said was, um, I don't want to make all the decisions and I don't want uh, the adults to defer to me in everything because that's their job. Like some of it is really their job. And I I thought it was so re- like refreshing to hear from an actual young person say that because often when you're you work around like children's autonomy and consent and stuff like that then you start to think that like children should be making all the decisions but actually it's a huge load it's a huge burden for them to be making some decisions like we we have the responsibility of care and like we do need to take some of those big decisions off their shoulders um that said, I mean, there are a lot of things. There's disagreement, I think, often between what, what is uh, a safety decision and therefore like is kind of for me to um, have an opinion on and maybe collaborate with my child on, not necessarily be like, now you will do this because you know it's I've decided. And what is not about safety? <laughs> so I think there's like, you know a line like that it can easily slide into control because it can easily be like well this is about health well this is about safety so right like missing brushing your teeth one night is different than never brushing your teeth right those are two totally different things one is a health and safety concern one is not yeah granted i'm not a dentist but one is not no, one is not. I feel I feel confident. I have a I have a friend who's a pediatric dentist, and I think she'll back me up on this. Um, yeah. So I yes, that's totally true. Some people will call it a health and safety thing. Uh, I know um, cold weather and what you what kids wear outside is often oh you have to wear a coat. It's a health and safety thing. And sometimes it is, and sometimes and if the kids not like, and if they get a cold, like. Yeah, like what, are, what you know, what? are they no compromise? I think that's an important, you know, what are their needs? It might not be. I totally, yeah. And I also agree with the like, it's a lot. I know when it comes to food choices, when I'm with my partner, I'm, I'm like either narrow it down to two places or narrow it, or I don't want to actually. That's not a kind of decision I want to make. It's overwhelming for me going on the app with all the all the choices it's too overwhelming. Narrowing it down is helpful to me. Mm-hmm. So I get why kids feel that way too. Yeah. I mean, I agree. And actually I've had conversations, many conversations with my children about food because often I'll make, well, at mealtime, I'll make a meal or somehow put together a meal. And, and I don't make everybody whatever they want. It's just like, maybe we decide beforehand together uh, or maybe we make like a meal plan for the week, but there will be one meal with several components but it'll be one meal for everybody 
and you know often they they're like but this isn't what I wanted or you know um and but then when I've asked them uh well how about cooking today like how about you make the meal today or tomorrow or whenever so you can make what you want they don't want to do that they don't want to decide what to make they don't want to <laughs> come into the kitchen and cook I mean rarely occasionally yes they've been like yes I'll make this meal but like not on a regular basis like that is really my job so I think it's that straddling that line right and then there's that important also zone of there's what you want to eat and then there's what you're willing to eat and then there's if this is the only option I'm going to be enduring like my first choice might be mac and cheese but yeah I'm willing to eat lasagna because I I that's what you're serving tonight that's what the meal is but if it's chicken and I'm a vegetarian, like, no, that is not okay with me. And I, I need another solution. It doesn't, um, we can be willing sometimes and that's okay. It's important that you're sometimes getting the things you want, mm -hmm. but it's also, yeah, you got to be able to be willing sometimes too. Yeah. And that's the, that's the, the one aspect also of consent is like, going along with something because you it's it's okay like it's an okay solution like it's not ideal it's not maybe what you would choose to do but it's something that maybe we all have to do um and so we have to agree on a way that is like acceptable for everybody right so that mm -hmm. that is also I guess called consent but it's not the kind of consent where you're like enthusiastically agreeing right Exactly. And there are some people who will say that if you don't like want it, then it's not consent. And that's, I think that's taking away a lot of autonomy from people of like, no, I want to give this gift to someone that they don't have to make me a separate meal. And so, yeah, I'm willing to eat this again. It's not enduring. We don't want to be enduring something, but if you're genuinely willing, and again, as long as I said before, as long as you're not always the person who's willing and the other person's always getting what they want. Some of the time you're getting what you want. Some of the time they're getting what you want. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can, you so can you talk a little bit about like what power with looks like? I think willing and wanting, um, which is language from Betty Martin's Wheel of Consent, is great. Um, um, a, a great tool to use, right? You know, the kid says, I want this. And the, you know, parents like, I'm exhausted. That's really hard to make. And then like, well, are you willing to do the prep step that needs to be done so we can have it tomorrow? Right. And then same with the parent. Okay. Like I hear you want this, but are you willing to have that version? So uh, cook it in the microwave instead of the oven. So it goes quicker. Um, so that's power with that's, that's some um, helpful language for that. Um, choices, you know, limiting choices. That's a, a classic one, you know, here are your three options. Pick one of these, um, and I think also being mindful of the big picture, um, right? Is that is it the kid, it's that they're not brushing their teeth tonight or they're never brushing their teeth. I think 
it's not just that every time it's always equal, that's not necessarily power with, but it's that overall, yeah, sometimes you're going to make an executive decision and sometimes they're going to make a decision that society would look at you and be like, that's not how you're supposed to parent. That's very permissive of you that you let them watch this many hours of TV and you're like, yep, but that's what they wanted to do today. And so they got to do that. And that's just it. So I think like that is also a, a major part of it, that it's not a, um, you're not just taking one moment and looking at it and saying, is this power with? It has to be power with. Um, or like, is I shouldn't say, is this power with? Is, is this equal? Or like, is this, um, is their autonomy respected enough? Or is there, am I ruining their brain by letting them fi watch five hours of TV? Um, and just, Look at the bigger picture. Yeah, I like that idea of looking at the um, at the bigger picture. I think I, I I used to do a thing. I think I read this somewhere, but I don't remember. Like when they were very little, and I felt like they weren't like. I'm so much more relaxed now, but I was a lot less relaxed, and I felt like they weren't eating like the right food. And then I used to just I started looking at it from like, did they eat, blah 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 this week as opposed to like looking at every single day, you know, like overall in the week, were vegetables eaten? Yes, okay, great. Great, great. Yeah. And so also, yeah. And then also like, are you scaffolding, right? If they went from never eating vegetables to they ate one serving of broccoli, that might be a win. And then, you know, next week you're gonna go for two days or you're gonna go from bro for broccoli one day and carrots a different day and slowly building um, towards whatever your goal is if there's more resistance. That is also a version of power with that it's not just, you have to do this every time, every day, but you know, I see a big picture in a way that you might not. And so I'm gonna work with you to, to figure out how we can make this feel okay for both of us. Okay, I think this leads us really well into boundaries. I wanted to ask you about this because there's a lot of different, you know, versions of like, should we set boundaries? Should we not set boundaries? Like boundaries are bad, boundaries are good, blah, blah. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, boundaries are great. That's, that's my opinion. Um, I'm pretty sure most psychologists would back me up on this. Uh, no, boundaries are great. And I'm curious if you're asking about boundaries in general or parents setting boundaries with kids or kids setting boundaries with parents. Uh, I think, but okay, let's just stick to parent child because that's a very different dynamic to like from adult to adult, right? Um, so parent child, like, like, are we like, first of all, how, how would you define a boundary? Because <clears throat> again, like people define it very differently. I, I actually don't have uh, a definition of boundary that I use all the time. Um, I use the word boundary and limit kind of interchangeably, um, where it's the line that divides what you are okay with from what you are not okay with, um, or from what is allowable to you to what is not allowable to you. Sometimes the word comfortable is tricky because you can choose to be uncomfortable as like a growth zone. So what is allowable to you to, to what is not, you know, what's not going to fly. It's a very not strict definition. I, I don't, I don't talk about that definition a lot. Um, 
when I do talk about it, it's it's often in terms of willing, wanting, and enduring. Where a boundary would be, nope, this is this is not this is not gonna fly with me. Um and a boundary is this is not gonna fly with me. And I think it's very important for parents to set boundaries with kids because parents are also people and they also have their their limits and it's it does get trickier in the parent child relationship and there's definitely more uh willing in that relationship on the side of the parent um that's going to be happening sometimes uh I don't think anyone wants to wake up at 2 a.m for a feeding but you're willing to um I think that's really helpful language, actually, the willing and the wanting. Like, you might not want to do a lot of stuff as a parent, but you are willing to do, you know, make allowances for a bunch of other things because you feel that it's for the greater good, right? Mm -hmm, exactly. Or like listening to, you know, the child picks the music in the car. Most of the time you're willing to listen to it. Like, you get it. They don't have a lot of choice in this world if they really want to listen to a song okay, they get to, but then there might be a time where you're like, I have such a headache. And today I am saying that I, I need no music in the car. Are you willing to give me that? Like, is that, is that okay with you? Right. And then they might come back and say, yes, they might come back and say no. And then you'll, you know, try to explain your piece or maybe there's a compromise you can make, but I think one of the, uh, in addition to parents get to set boundaries because they're also people and get headaches sometimes, uh, I think it's also important for, or it is also important for kids to be able to see how setting boundaries looks and how to accept boundaries and practice accepting boundaries, practice also maybe pushing back a little bit. And by pushing back, just saying like, oh, here's some, you know, missing information you might have can we incorporate this in the decision that's being made um, and navigating that and that it's not just whatever I want because I'm the kid and I have less power, I definitely get. That's that's not fair either. Um, we wanna model for kids how to be responsible with power, uh, not just how to uh, not be subject to it. Mm, yeah. And I mean, I think you've raised some good points. One that like, they need to see us do it so that they know how to do it for themselves. Cause otherwise, how are they gonna be able to set boundaries with other children even or like with adults, mm -hmm. and all that, right? And then um, the second thing I wanted to say is that a lot of the time we can also see them like less as kind of fixed, like less as like a wall between me and you and more as like, uh, you know okay let's let's brainstorm and think of something that like works for both of us like this is what I try and do especially with like my younger son who um he's hasn't been diagnosed but he's probably autistic I talk about it a lot um and he has a really hard time when I when I'll be like no this is how it's going to be but if I kind of involve him in the decision uh, we might come to the same exact conclusion, but it just doesn't get his nervous system as kind of panicked as it would if I was like, it's going to be like this and this is my boundary and that's, you know, you got to do this or whatever. 
It's the same thing with the word consent. The word boundary can sound like, oh, it's inflexible. There's no movement here. And it's important to know, I think, what boundaries are, but it's also important to know that they're flexible, right? Mostly in the car, it's okay. Sometimes in the car, it's not okay you know, to listen to music, that that's going to be different day to day, moment to moment. And also when I'm setting this boundary, I might only have my information. You might have new information that would change this. Like you brought your headphones today and you can plug them into the car. Oh, whoa, that totally changes the situation. Um, that boundaries aren't, aren't necessarily uh, a shutdown, but information. Exactly. It doesn't, they don't end the conversation. Well, they, they don't write or I they mean, don't write well, not necessarily they don't necessarily end it yeah I mean obviously it depends and again adult to adult this is going to look different and there are going to be things that are going to just be a hard no yep yep um okay I would love for you to uh just to circle back to what you said at the very beginning about how talking to children about bodily autonomy now and uh about like you know what they're what they're okay with and what they're not okay with yes, no, maybe all of that stuff is going to then translate to them being able to uh, navigate the world when they're tweens, teens, adults, uh, also navigate like intimate relationships and all of that. Yeah. Uh, I kind of think about uh, trying to learn, let's say, piano when you're 18 years old and how much, how that will be so much more difficult than learning that slowly but surely from the time you're like four, let's say. Um, you'll have time to practice. And then by the time you're 18, you're fluent in playing piano and you've had practice and you've uh, made mistakes before there's ever been a recital. And then you're in your, you know, graduating year of high school and you're at the big recital and you're like oh I've done this before in a different context but I've done this before in a different setting so we understand in terms of playing piano in terms of playing sports in terms of doing math we understand that it takes time to build skills it's not something you can do overnight and it's also not something that you can just um absorb through hearing about how to do it right? I can learn exactly how my hand should be to dribble a basketball. And if I never pick up a basketball, there is no way I'm going to be able to successfully dribble a basketball across the court, right? We natural practice in doing that. This is something that we already understand in so many other facets of life, but it gets kind of um, obscured, I think, when it comes to interpersonal and social emotional skills um I think kind of it gets blurred by the idea of like good people and bad people that binary is like oh no I'm a good person so I'll know how to do this mm -hmm. uh, and that's just not how it works right you need you need the you need the time to practice it um and you need to see models of what it looks like um right you can read everything about a basketball but if you've never seen a basketball that's also going to make a difference you've never seen a game and see how why dribbling in that way is important is not going to make as much sense. Um, so it's just the same applies here to consent practices. Um, seeing people handle rejection well, getting to practice rejection well yourself or not well, but then getting some coaching on how maybe you can do it better next time. Um, 
Yeah, we talk a lot about like uh, hearing no graciously. I think Erica Scott said that or wrote that. Um, that's a big one. Like that's one that people don't really think about in when they talk about this kind of thing. But you know, it's hard. It is hard. And working out also, it, where what's the difference between hearing a no graciously and being part of a conversation when someone says no? Right. What does that actually look like? Because, you know, if we're just going by the no means no standard, then there's no room to say, oh, hey, I, I don't think you knew this information. Let me just clarify this, which is different than coercion. And and so children need models for how does that look and specifically how does that look in someone who has power? Because if a child says no to a parent, they can easily just be like, well, I'm the parent. And so therefore I get to do this thing, even though you said no. And so specifically like handling a no gracefully when you have power, that's important. Asking first when you have power, that's important. Cause that just does, that doesn't just teach people how to, or kids, how to navigate consent. It teaches them how to be responsible with power. Yeah. And also like, I feel like um, helping my children say no to me um like be confident to say no to me and not be afraid to uh is a is good in terms of like them not becoming people pleasers um and, and a lot of other things obviously but I just my mind goes to people pleasers especially for my girl child because you know many yep. <laughs> socialized into being people pleasers so uh, I think it's really important to, for her to be able to like say no to me, uh, but it's taken a lot, a long time to get to that place, you know, where she felt that that was safe. Um, and, and I, I mean, I never felt that growing up, you know, with, with my parents and they did the best that they can and they're wonderful and everything, but you know, there just wasn't that understanding. So I think it is important, um, kids to do that and I was going somewhere with this but now I'm I'm lost um but anyway <laughs> I'm gonna I was gonna ask you also like if you could name like the kind of more important or main things that let's say parents should be aware of in terms of like talking to their children about bodily autonomy talking to them about saying yes no maybe uh making decisions and so on uh, like what are the main kind of pointers? I, I think it's, yeah, no, no. I think it's less about for something like this. I think it's less about pointers and actually more about trial and error and coaching and modeling. It's again, that like telling them to do, they're probably getting the basics of, you know, telling what to do in, in their school schools if they're at school um you know of taking turns and asking for permission and things like that um but I think it's it's how do you think that person felt when that happened in that tv show and what might you have done differently in that situation right you can use tv you don't even have to use their actual lives but getting their like critical thinking and decision making skills online um to to help them figure out what am I going to do in this situation because this situation is going to be different than that situation is going to be different than that situation 
just like in acro yoga, right? How I practice with my friend who I've been practicing with forever uh, is going to be so different. And we take very different precautions than I would with someone who's brand new to me or brand new to the sport or brand new to, you know, um, so I think that is my, that is my like main tip is it's less about telling them like what they should know. Um, or I shouldn't say it's less about that. I think you can get that elsewhere. I think the unique thing I bring to the table is, is it's not just about telling them what to do because you're not going to be there to tell them that their body is theirs. Um, but it's about what, how do you model that their body is theirs and that asking is important and that handling rejection gracefully is important. And how do you help them build skills to do so in their own lives? That I was wondering was like, uh, how do we shift? Because I'm kind of in that space now. I have a, an almost teenager. So how do we shift from talking about, you know, just general bodily autonomy to talking about like uh, autonomy and consent in like more intimate relationships. So, I mean, do we even, is there even a shift? Is there even a moment when we're like, okay, now we're gonna like talk about this or does it, should it just be like a, a fluid thing? I don't know, I'd love to hear your thoughts. It definitely depends on what you've talked about in the past with your kids in terms of sex and intimacy. Um, I don't think it's all of a sudden a new conversation. I think it's just an, ex I think it's an extension and I think it's an extension in terms of stakes. Um, the stakes are higher in a scenario about sex than in a scenario about a play date. Um, deciding what you're gonna do, which, which board game you're gonna play is different than deciding uh, what sexual things you are going to do together. Um, I think, so I think in terms, I, I think that's the biggest change. Another big change is legal stuff um, where there needs to be conversation. Um, that is that is not how I focus on consent, but that is absolutely an important thing that kids and teens should know so they can be empowered to make choices accordingly. Um, and with that comes things like capacity, alcohol, drugs, uh, and then also comes conversations where you're, talking, using the same skills, but talking about them in a slightly different way. So if my friend came over and was willing to play Monopoly the last time she came over for a play date, right? It makes sense that I might assume that she would be willing to again. And also it's not okay for me to put that expectation on her, right? Totally makes sense that I might get a little excited that we might get to play my favorite board game again. Also, I hate Monopoly. I don't know why I chose that as an example. It's so not my, it's like my least favorite board game. But I we're going. Like the play. Yeah, but we're going with it, right? Um. So I think giving like, I, I think people are like, you know, consent once doesn't mean consent again. Yes, that's true. And also like, of course, you're gonna, you're gonna think like, oh, we did this last time. Like maybe I'll get to do this thing I really like again and talk about like why that might not be the case and what you can do to find out if they might want to play that, but might not. 
and how the stakes might be different and how they might feel uh, pressured or how their body might be feeling differently and how that plays a role and how being willing to play Monopoly is different than being willing to do this thing that you're not sure if you want to do with your body. Um, I yeah. think that's, yeah, that's, See how that's it's kind of the same conversation, but it's, it becomes, well, it, it becomes higher stakes, like you said, like it becomes embroiled in much more deeper kind of physical and emotional stuff and has big potentially bigger consequences right uh but it is in fact kind of the same conversations that we've been having all along but then like maybe gradually starting to make the link uh because you can't assume the kids will just and uh, maybe they will but you <clears throat> i mean i don't want to assume that my children will automatically assume that when i talk to them about whether their friend wants to play monopoly like again they will then eventually make the link with you know something else in an intimate relationship like so I guess at some point we have to make that link and if we've been talking about the things in terms of you know just play dates or other relationships with younger children then it will make sense to them almost immediately when we right when we then transfer the same exact conversation into another sphere um yep. I think we have to do that because also like I know that as a parent and other parents I talk to, it's so easy to put it off and to just be like, oh, no, not going to talk about that now. I don't know when we're going to talk. Like at some point, because it's yeah. awkward. Absolutely. And, t- and that's why TV and movies are a great opportunity to do that. Um, I recommend, yeah, TV and movies of like, oh, how do you think she felt about what that guy just did? right, as as a way to talk about it and how that situation might be different. I also, it can be fun, and this is definitely for a certain type of kid. I am that type of kid um, who likes to challenge adults, is uh, you can do a game where you create scenarios and ask and, like, switch off creating scenarios so parent makes them for child, child makes them for parent, of, like, what would you do? So... Um, Okay, so you're at a party. This would probably be not like the transitional conversation, but a little bit later on, right? You're at a party and there's drinking going on, but you haven't had a drink and your uh, girlfriend wants to make out with you. Like, what do you, like, is that okay or something? Or And like, you start like adding in factors and taking out factors and you ask questions and you're essentially teaching them. It's a would you rather question. You're teaching them, like decision-making skills and like what how do you see the whole picture and what are you considering in order to make that decision um and that there's not necessarily a right answer there can be many right answers there can also be a a good bunch of wrong answers I'll say that um but there's also there's a lot of like different questions and different factors that you might want to consider um you know um there's different factors that you might want to consider and help them again, like develop that decision making muscle. I think, I think role-playing is such a great, great way to do that actually. And it works even, you know, before you have these conversations, even with just like, um, I sometimes do it with my, with my children. And I used to do it a lot more when they were younger before we went to like, I don't know, grandma's house or whatever. And I'm like, you know, when grandma says this, like something that I know made them uncomfortable, 
like let's practice what you're going to say okay i'll be grandma and like yeah so i think it can be done all along you know and then you just take Mm -hmm. i i i love role playing that i also some like will role play sometimes like pressure like coercion type things like what do you do in that situation yeah I think it's important to, to, for them to rehearse it and especially for some children who maybe are like more reluctant or whatever to see it play out you know in a safe space right right and that they don't know it's not a scripted role play you don't like we know where we're starting but then it's improv yeah. right you don't know where we're gonna go and like and there again it goes back to there isn't it's not telling there's one right way to handle this situation right you can be really assertive verbally. You can say, I'm going to go get some water and walk away. You can't like, there are so many different ways to handle it. Um, there's no necessarily like right way. You just want to have a whole tool belt um, to call upon. Okay. Well, um, I'm going to let you go. It was such a pleasure to have you. Do you want to just um, quickly tell people where they can find you um, online? And if you have anything coming up that you think is uh, valuable. Cool. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Instagram at comprehensive consent or at comprehensiveconsent.com. I have some uh, workshops uh, that are recorded that you can watch uh, on my website. They are behind a paywall, I should say, to pay to watch on my website. Um, I also, uh, most of my work, I'm trying, or I'm trying to make most of my work in schools. So if people want to talk to me message me email me dm me about how to how to make that happen that would be great um I have one more thing oh and then be on the lookout i uh i have a curriculum for teachers of 8 to 13 year olds um that is going to be coming out probably the end of 2024 uh, i submitted the first draft to the publisher and that's great. I'm glad that this is getting out more into, you know, all sorts of environments and it's just becoming more of a conversation. Thank all you right. so much. I, I love the work that you do. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find more of my writing on Substack at Radical Mothering. And also please consider rating and reviewing this podcast and sharing this episode if you enjoyed it.